0: Hello, oh, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rodner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Wednesday, May 29th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Jen Habercorn of the Los Angeles Times. Hi, Julie. And we welcome to our panel, Sandia Raman of CQ Roll Call. Hello. Uh, Later in this episode, we'll have an interview with my KHN colleague Lauren Weber. She wrote the latest bill of the month about a nurse midwife, her own birth, and some very expensive nitrous oxide. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So this marks our 100th episode. I can't believe it's been almost two years. I want to thank all of our panelists, the folks here at KHN whose voices you don't hear but who get the podcast produced and posted every week, and most of all, our loyal listeners who give us such great feedback in honor of our anniversary and because Congress is out and because while we don't say it that often, we are an all-women podcast, I thought we'd take a deep dive today on one of the hottest topics in the news, abortion. There's a lot of misinformation out there, so I hope we can provide some context. And I guess we need to start with some fairly big abortion news this week. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court finally explained why it's been sitting on a decision for months about whether or not to take up a challenge to an Indiana law that bans abortion for race, sex selection, and disability, and also requires cremation or burial of fetal remains. So the Supreme Court, in the end, didn't take the case, but it did decide it. In an unsigned ruling, it let stand the lower court decision that Indiana couldn't ban abortions for particular reasons, but it also also overturned the lower court and said Indiana can require burial or cremation of fetal remains. Uh, what should we read into this kind of split
1: ruling? Alice? There was a lot of speculation that the Supreme Court could take up a major abortion case that directly threatens the precedent established in Roe versus Wade in the heat of the 2020 election, inflaming both sides, potentially motivating voters on both sides to come out. Um, Now it looks like that may not happen. They turned away the part of the case that would have directly challenged Roe versus Wade, a part that said you can't get an abortion if your reason for getting an abortion is the race, sex, or disability status of the fetus. A bunch of states are passing laws like that recently. Um, and then they put into effect another piece of the law without even holding oral arguments, saying that these fetal remains have to be buried or cremated. That could have been challenged as a violation of the undue burden precedent. But the people who sued over the law did not specifically argue that. So it's kind of this technicality that gets the court out of having a big hot debate at this moment. Basically, it
0: looks like they sort of gave one to each side and said in both cases, they could come back again later, right?
2: Right. And Clarence Thomas, um, he He and Justice Ginsburg wrote, and uh, Clarence Thomas said something along the lines of, "The court is going to have to take up this question eventually." The reason behind getting the question on the ban part, not the information part that really worried abortion rights supporters because they feel like if the court is going to take up a big case to challenge Roe, it's going to be one of these method bans, how the abortion is done, or the purpose, the the reasoning behind why a woman would choose to to get an abortion. And that was what the abortion rights supporters most feared. So you're right, both sides got to kind of cheer a victory. But this is this is far from over. I assume we're going to see a similar case get up to the court next year. And then the court, you know, again, will have to decide whether to take it.
0: Does it, does it feel like they're trying to avoid the 2020 election?
1: <laughs> well, D- Justice Thomas is not. Justice Thomas <laughs> is is uh, ready to go. Um, he wrote just a very long and fiery piece of his opinion and was basically inviting states to keep passing these laws because he was saying, you know, once this percolates through the courts a bit more and there's more sort of competing or decisions from the lower federal courts piling up, then it could push the Supreme Court to act. And he's previously scolded the Supreme Court for not taking up a previous Planned Parenthood related case and basically accusing his colleagues of being too afraid to touch the issue. Um, So there was like a little of that hint again. I, I think everyone sort of feels like this has to happen eventually.
0: Well, you know, we always talk about how, you know, this is all about the Supreme Court, but there's a lot of abortion regulation that's going on, kind of irrespective Perspective of what the courts are saying. And we had an example in Missouri, um, which may soon become the first state without an abortion provider since Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. Um, this has nothing to do with the ban that the governor signed uh, that would ban all abortions at eight weeks, but rather with regulations issued by the state's health department. What's happening in Missouri? Sandy, you wrote about this.
3: Yeah. So yesterday, Planned Parenthood said that their only clinic that's left in St. Louis is going to have to close as early as Friday if they don't get certain requirements okayed by the state. Missouri requires all uh, abortion facilities to be certified by the state. And they are, have been arguing kind of since April about certain certifications that are kind of new and would require kind of intrusive
0: interviews with all of the doctors that are there. I think people are getting this – getting confused. It's not that the Planned Parenthood would close. It's that they would no longer be able to do abortions.
3: Yeah. So they, they do operate in the state, but they would not be able to offer any abortions in the state.
0: Including medical abortions, including yes, the abortion yes, pill. Yeah. So, so basically, Missouri would become the first yeah. state yeah. With, without an abortion provider, um, which is one of the things that that people, you know, had been sort of warning. We we, we saw we saw it almost happen in several states. I think most prominently uh, Mississippi, but mm-hmm. now we're we're sort of looking at the possibility, unless a court intervenes. So, yeah, I in guess Kentucky
1: a couple of years ago too.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: Well, now five states are down to only having one clinic. And in Missouri, Missouri had several um, just a few years ago, um, and they've slowly had to close because of these state regulations. And I was reading that one of the main issues was that the state was requiring um, the clinic to perform pelvic exams on women before they got the abortion pill. And the doctors were saying, this is not medically necessary at all. This is completely invasive and potentially traumatizing to, to have a pelvic exam in this way for no medical purpose. And thus, we will refuse to do it. And we'd rather close than, than comply with this, which is sort of what, what could happen if some of these other regulations go into effect.
2: And we should note Roe is still the law of the land. Yeah. You know, abortion is still legal in all 50 states. In all 50 states. Mm-hmm. Um, but if this were to happen and the state doesn't have a clinic, you know, that's that's the environment that abortion rights supporters have warned about, that abortion is still technically legal. But without access, you know, Missouri is a pretty big state and people would have to go across um, the border into other states. And for some people, that just is really – essentially illegal to them. You know, if they can't do it, it's Mm -hmm. unavailable.
0: All right. Well, let's start our deep dive into abortion policy with the state of abortion in the U.S. today. Um, Who wants to run through uh, some of the stats? How many abortions are there? Who's having them? When in pregnancy? Um, So the number of abortions is actually at its lowest since
2: Roe versus Wade. Um, And you know, experts are debating whether why that is, but in large part, more access to contraception and more education,
0: and and more access to better contraception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, long the, acting contraception, the long, long that acting has, contraception that has, has, has been very effective.
2: So the number of abortions has gone down. Also, there's fewer teen pregnancies, fewer teen abortions. So in all those ways, public health wise. The, the situation is improving. But it seems like while the number of abortions has gone down exponentially, the political debate around the procedure has just gone in the opposite direction. And that leads us to where we are today.
0: Yeah, I was looking at at, at some of the stats and I was sort of I reminded myself that, that most women who get abortions are in their 20s. They're not teenagers. They already have children. Um, they have at least one child at home. And abortions overwhelmingly happen early in pregnancy for all of the, you know, what we hear about the, you know, these uh, abortions in the 8th and ninth month. Those are like a tiny, tiny fraction.
2: Yeah, it's 1.3% are done after 20 weeks. In a lot of those cases it's because of some kind of diagnosis whether to the woman or to the fetus. And obviously there's there's a range of reasons, but a lot of them sound very sympathetic. You know, it's a wanted pregnancy that has gone terribly wrong. And so the the vast majority is before 12 weeks. And
0: yeah, and there's only a couple of abortion providers in the country who do late abortions, and those are you know generally in in dire medical circumstances. It's not it's not really women who show up and say, um, "Yes, I'm eight months pregnant, and now I'm deciding that maybe I don't want to be pregnant."
2: As long as it's legal in the state at that point, it's the
0: physician's decision, and I think.
2: I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a physician who would just agree to do an abortion that late in pregnancy.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about a few things that abortion is not. Uh, for example, abortion is not birth control, yet that always gets people confused. I'm not, Sandhya, you're nodding. <laughs> yeah, I
3: think there there is a big misconception about that because there is birth control which prevents the sperm and egg from implanting and fertilizing. Um, And then emergency contraception, which, you know, you can take up to 72 hours after you had uh, intercourse and then completely different from that is a medication abortion which is a two pill cocktail that you can take early on in the pregnancy under like 12 weeks or so but that... only
0: after the pregnancy is yes, established yes mm-hmm. so those are two completely different things and that's you know a big misconception a lot of people have yes the abortion pill is not emergency contraception yeah <laughs> and and emergency contrac- contraception is not the abortion pill yeah um, I also want to talk briefly about a concept called personhood that's part of the new Georgia law and it's passed separately in Alabama. The idea is to establish legal rights uh, starting when a sperm fertilizes an egg, which I should note is well before pregnancy begins, at least medically. Mm -hmm. Um, The medical start of pregnancy is when a fertilized egg implants in a woman's uterus, um, mostly for the reason that that's when you can detect it. Mm -hmm. Um, What implications could personhood have? Could it mean for giving legal rights to basically a fertilized egg? (laughs)
1: I've been seeing both on social media and in articles a lot of anxiety around what all of these new laws mean um for miscarriages because miscarriages are incredibly common <laughs> that you know there's a lot of stigma about talking about it. We all know several people whether we know it or not who who have miscarried. Also, probably we know someone who has had an abortion. M- miscarriages are incredibly common. Uh, they're not well understood. There are risk factors for them, but they can happen for unexplained reasons. And there's a lot of anxiety about whether women who are already going through that um, grief and and pain will then have to face some sort of legal jeopardy. Um, if, if a fetus is a person, could there be some sort of manslaughter-esque, unintentional mm-hmm. harm, mm-hmm. you know, if a woman has an unhealthy diet, which is a risk factor for miscarriages, but doesn't necessarily cause them, could she be held culpable, you know. If she has a glass of wine. Right, mm-hmm. right. And and will individual, very aggressive prosecutors take it upon themselves to investigate women? Women have already been investigated and prosecuted um, in this country after miscarrying. <laughs> so this is not like completely hypothetical. Jail. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it's definitely worth thinking through the implications here.
2: And several states have tried to enact this through ballot measures, notably Colorado, which I think it was on the ballot twice. Three, oh, twice or three times?
1: Mm-hmm. It was at um, least twice. Yeah, at least
2: twice, <laughs> yeah. twice. and. That was a question to voters. You know, should a fetus have the rights of a person? And it always failed. Um, no state has has enacted that through a ballot measure.
0: Well, I think partly it's because, you know, one of the things they say and this when you're, we're talking about sort of how birth control works sometimes, it can prevent the implantation of a fertilized egg. So if that fertilized egg – and this is why some people believe that some parts – that some kinds of birth control are abortion because they believe that preventing implantation, mm-hmm. that that's already a human being that should have rights. Although should also point out that medically, most fertilized eggs – don't implant on their own. But it raises questions, what do you do about in vitro fertilization? Mm-hmm. With that, That's one of the reasons that, that it went down both in Colorado and in Mississippi. Um, it actually also, voters turned it down. Um, you know, what about child support? <laughs> right. know, what about, can you take a tax deduction if you're three weeks pregnant? I've we also heard inheritance rights has been an issue when Alabama was looking at it last year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that that's sort of an, another wrinkle into the, into, into the abortion debate. Um, so all of this is kind of confusing. Let's talk a little bit about what the public thinks about abortion. This is clearly one of those cases where it really, really, really depends how you ask the question. Yes, everybody's nodding. Yes.
2: <laughs> right. The labels pro-choice and pro-life don't really apply anymore because there's a lot of people who would Tell a pollster that they believe they're pro-choice or or pro-life, but then when you ask the follow-up question, well, should abortion be legal in all circumstances or mm-hmm. illegal in all circumstances? They give totally different answers. So people, have, I feel like, have kind of developed their own definition. And it's very individualized. You know, there's very few people who think abortion should be illegal in every single circumstance. And there's maybe the same number of people who believe it should be illegal in every circumstance. So these pollsters' questions, I sometimes want to strangle the pollster
0: and ask the question myself. (laughs) Yes. Well, so – and as Jen just said, if you look at the polls over time, you can't help but come to the conclusion that the public is overwhelmingly someplace in the middle, mm-hmm. thinking that some but not all abortion should be allowed. And obviously, they sort of span the, you know, the, the spectrum there. Yet elected officials seem to be racing to the outer edges of the debate right now. Um, there's fewer and fewer Republicans to support abortion rights, fewer and fewer Democrats who oppose abortion rights. Why is this when, A, public opinion hasn't really changed that much, and B, the public is mostly in the middle, politicians are mostly on the edges.
1: I think it's really fascinating how little public opinion on this has changed over time, especially when you compare to so-called similar social issues. Um, I mean, the the opinion on Mm -hmm. gay marriage has changed wildly. Even things like marijuana legalization have changed wildly over time. And this just has not. And I don't know if it's the connection with religion, although, again, then why wouldn't you see the same swing as gay marriage? Um, But it's very deeply ingrained for folks. Um, um but consistently the majority of the public supports upholding Roe versus Wade. Um, we can say that. <laughs> yes. Um the polls are fuzzy on some other things, but we can definitely say that. Yeah. A- and and in Roe versus Wade generally does go in the middle. It's not an absolute. It's protecting the right to have an abortion up to the viability of the fetus living out there you know, independently.
0: <laughs> and restrictions after that. Mm-hmm. Anybody else have feelings for why why the we're seeing such polarization among elected officials if it's not there among the public? I
2: feel like it's politicians who are the outlier here. You know, the political parties have moved very far in opposite directions. And also the groups that oppose and support abortion rights have gotten a lot more active. And they, you know, help push politicians sure. outside of that middle area. I mean, we do not have a Republican in the House who supports any abortion rights. Those last ones left office in the last Congress, Charlie Denton, Pennsylvania, and Rodney Fralinghausen in New Jersey. Um, So there's not a House Republican who would consider crossing the line on abortion rights. And in the Senate, you know, we have very few. You know, the Senate votes you know, a couple of times a year on something related to abortion. And I can tell you right now who those people might be who might cross the aisle. We've talked about them all a lot. Exactly. Yeah. And they fit on one hand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are no surprises. It's very hard to see. We now. should
0: probably name them, though. It's on, on the Republican side, it's Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. That's right. Yep. Pretty much nobody else. and but it the...
3: is interesting that they vote that way when it's a policy issue. But when it's a judicial nominee, right. they, they don't necessarily vote that way. That's right. Susan Collins
0: voted for Brett Kavanaugh, Mm -hmm.
3: even though she tends to vote. And
1: it's important to say that on the Democratic side in the Senate, there are a couple of folks who cross the aisle the other way. And I would say Bob Casey and Joe Manchin for sure. And um, Um, Doug Jones. Sometimes. Sometimes. Um, yeah.
2: Hinted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he does. But it depends the on the policy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: Um, so it's interesting that there. Yeah, there's just a handful on both sides. But in the Senate, you, you have to represent your entire state, not just your little gerrymandered district. So it yeah. does make sense. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, that's where we are today, at least kind of. Now, I want to run through a very brief history of the abortion debate, starting with Roe v. Wade. Um, Alice, reiterate what you just said about what Roe v. Wade did in 1973.
1: Right, it protects the right for a woman to have an abortion up to the point of viability, which is about twenty-four weeks. But it, it does, does move back. It does yeah, it's move. been moving back a little bit. Yeah, but. all of these new bans that are twenty weeks, fifteen weeks, six, eight, those would all challenge Roe versus Wade's standard.
0: Um, and to put it in context, uh, Roe actually came only a year after the court ruled that states couldn't ban birth control for unmarried women. Um, these things have always been kind of inextricably linked. I remember when I did one of my first stories in the 1980s, I was like, well, why can't we at least compromise on birth control if everybody agrees that birth control can prevent abortions? And I was young and naive. And birth control seems to be as, as big an issue politically these days as abortion itself. Yes.
2: And I think when Roe was decided, the lawyers were looking for, you know, how can we make this argument convincing to the justices? And the birth control decision, you know, somewhat related, also right to privacy. And that's what Roe is based on, which legal scholars debate whether that's a good idea or not, but the right to birth control is related to that right to
0: privacy as well. That's right, which Roe in some ways was just an extension of the, the birth control cases that came before it. So in 1989, in a case called Webster versus Reproductive Health Services of Missouri, the court upheld a bunch of restrictions that the state had imposed, including a ban on the use of public employees or public facilities to perform abortions and a requirement for fetal viability testing for abortions done after 20 weeks, to, to right to Roe, Alice, as you're saying. That was the last time it seemed like the court actually had five votes to over turn Roe, except it didn't. Uh, Like today, we saw a bunch of states rushing to pass bans and other restrictions in hopes of getting one of their laws to the Supreme Court that would become the vehicle to end Roe. But in 1992, instead, the court reaffirmed Roe in Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. This is Senator Casey's father, who was then the governor. Um,
1: How did the Casey case change what Roe said? It upheld it largely, which was important because that was not a given. (laughs) It strengthened Rose protections in that way by by upholding it. But it also said it established a new standard, which leaves a lot more room for individual judges to interpret.
0: The undue burden standard that we hear about Mm -hmm. a lot in these court cases. Which
2: at the time seemed like it was defined, but it's really not. Right. Judges have been deciding now for however many years, what is an undue burden? And it changes quite a bit depending on the judge.
1: Absolutely. It, yeah. it
0: does. And I think that's why that, that case was so important because it's like, okay, it, you know, it, basically every case now, as we just saw in Indiana um, this week, comes up and the and the justices get to decide whether or not it's an undue burden on a woman's right to get an abortion. Although Indiana case, they said, well, they didn't argue that. Um, so, But yes, clearly this has been, this has gone back and forth. So I want to point out the next two big abortion cases came in 2000 and 2003 and both were about proposed bans on a little-used procedure uh, late in pregnancy that abortion opponents dubbed partial birth abortion. Um, what was interesting about these cases is that they showed how quickly the court could pivot when the membership of the court changed. In 2000, the court overturned a Nebraska law that sought to ban the procedure um, on a 5-4 to four vote. Three years later, the court upheld a nearly identical federal ban, also by 5-4. to four. What was the difference? Well, the retirement of abortion rights backer Sandra Day O'Connor and the appointment in her place of abortion opponent Samuel Alito. What does that tell us about what the court could do now?
1: Well, (laughs) there's so many
3: things. I mean, we had Kavanaugh join the court last year and abortion opponents have kind of seized on that kind of pushing for legislation that they hope will be challenged in states across the country, both on gestation and just kind of procedure and everything just kind of cover the board. Because if they succeed, this will be like a huge victory for for them. And it used to be that Anthony Kennedy was the swing
2: vote. And, you know, he was largely an abortion rights supporter, um, but conservatives, you know, hoped that they would be able to sway him. Now, the center is really Chief Justice John Roberts and, um, you know, also a Republican appointee. Um, And I think the challenge now for anyone who's debating an abortion case before the Supreme Court is going to be, getting Roberts' vote. That's assuming Gorsuch and Kavanaugh vote the way, you know, everyone and Washington would expect them to. Gorsuch, who, of course, replaced abortion opponent Antonin Scalia. Right. So he's considered the same vote as as his predecessor. But, you know, Roberts is going to be much more concerned about the court's legacy. Mm-hmm. And he would be thinking, you know, is my Supreme Court going to be the one that overturns abortion rights? Um, and And that's going to be a different tactic than trying to win over
0: Anthony Kennedy. Yeah, well, you've sort of anticipated because the the last big abortion case uh, the court decided was in 2016 in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, a case out of Texas. Um, The justices struck down a series of restrictions, including requiring doctors who provide abortion to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. Um, The five-justice majority on that case included the four liberals who are still there and the swing vote on abortion for decades, Anthony Kennedy. Kennedy obviously gone, replaced by Brett Kavanaugh. What do we know about what Kavanaugh actually thinks about abortion. He certainly didn't talk about it much at his uh, um, confirmation hearings. He certainly didn't talk about it enough to make Susan Collins vote against him.
3: No, but I mean, he has the backing of, I guess, the big anti-abortion lobby. And we kind of have signs that he would do something that would support them. But at the same time, we had the case last year where uh, related to Medicaid, and it was like narrowly decided but they were split on that so it's unclear depending on the case how he could rule and he, to your
2: point, he convinced Susan Collins, and uh, Collins, I believe, went public with saying that Kavanaugh told her that he um, believes in the precedent of Roe. You know, the proof's going to be in the pudding. He hasn't been on the court very long. We don't know. Is he kind of the in the mold of Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito? Is he going to be in, worried about the court as an institution like John Roberts? And that's going to be a huge difference if, if a case challenging Roe were to get
1: there. He does have some background people can look to at um, the D.C. Circuit, where he served for many years. And uh, he
0: had like one or two cases, I think, mm-hmm. that, that he...
1: And fairly recently, he was on the side of the Trump administration preventing immigrant teens who are in detention from obtaining an abortion. And so that was sort of the most recent abortion case. And there was even talk when that was sort of (laughs) re-argued that if it got to the Supreme Court, which it could, um, that he should recuse himself. But that's always up to the justices.
0: So what are the next few cases that the justices might see, Alice? You did you did a whole little infographic on this. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, there, there's a bunch. There's at least a dozen um, that are just one step away from the Supreme Court. Um, They're whole, not these six-week bans that we've been talking about, right? No. The the only one that's like that is a 15-week ban um, that's in the pipeline. I believe they have not conferenced on it yet. So they were conferencing on this Indiana case for months. Since
0: January. <laughs> so
1: yeah. now that one's out of the running for now. Although, like we said, it could definitely come back. Um, once the fetal burial provision goes into effect, uh, there could be there definitely will be lawsuits um, and they could, you know, argue the undue burden um, argument that they didn't before. But there's there's all kinds of cases. There's ones um, related to the admitting privileges issue we, we just touched on, which the people challenging that law say, Look, most abortions are completely safe. You don't have to send the woman to the hospital. It's extremely rare that that would happen. And if it happened, if it was a genuine emergency and a woman needed to go to the hospital, you don't need admitting privileges. Hospitals have to take people in an emergency, Um, and this is just another sort of hoop or hurdle for for doctors to jump through. There are cases uh, related to waiting periods and um, parental consent and just all kinds, the methods of abortion, the surgical methods specifically, Um, and so lots of different sort of angles of going at it.
0: And that's actually exactly what I want to talk to um, talk about next. Um, Even though, as we said at the top, abortion is legal in all 50 states, there are lots of restrictions on abortion. Um, We should probably at least mention the big federal restriction on abortion, the Hyde Amendment, which has been uh, in in effect in some form since 1977. Um, And it has been to the Supreme Court and it's upheld it. But abortion rights um, backers would like to make the Hyde Amendment go away. That's one of the things that a lot of candidates, a lot of Democrats in 2018 ran on. Is there any chance of making the Hyde Amendment go away? I
2: don't think so. <laughs> Not I mean, in the there's, Senate. <laughs> there's no. definitely
0: a tension on the issue and, and it does
2: seem to be like a 2020 issue, but it's been a compromise for so long that, you know, you're gonna you're gonna get the the, the far left, the progressives, who argue that you know, their argument is that this really hurts poor women because uh they're the ones who are enrolled in federal health care programs and can't access the procedure, but I don't see it going away.
0: Yeah,
3: to be fair, it is authorized every year in the funding bill, so they they have an opportunity every year. But mm-hmm. with the current makeup of Congress, it just it's very unlikely.
1: I thought it was interesting that the uh, the House Appropriations Committee, controlled by progressive Democrats, still chose to keep the Hyde Amendment in their budget this year, even though they put. I mean, they they noted in the markup that, you know, we don't agree with this, but we're doing it because we know that the Senate would never agree and the president would never agree. But I thought it was interesting because they put some other stuff in there that the Senate and the president will also never agree to. Um, but they still um, sort of capitulated on the Hyde Amendment it question. Is, it
0: is kind of a declaration of war, though, if they were to, to take it For out. For
1: sure. Yeah. But they I mean, they put other stuff in like repealing the Title 10 rule. And <laughs> yeah. I mean... Yeah, Yeah.
0: I think I think there's, uh, you know, my my favorite piece of trivia about the Hyde Amendment is that when I first started covering Congress, there were no rape and incest exceptions in the Hyde Amendment. They went away. They were there originally. They went away in 1981. They didn't come back until 1993. And the reason they came back was that um, the Democrats, when they took over, when Bill Clinton became president, did take it out of the appropriation bill. And Henry Hyde figured out some amazing maneuver parliamentary maneuver to get it back in. And he put the rape and Mm exception back in himself because he said he didn't think there were the votes to Mm -hmm. not have it there. So that's Mm -hmm. how the Amendment basically came to be in the form it is now Mm -hmm. was that that Henry Hyde himself um, put it back there. But it's, you know, no one I don't think has really tried to take it out since because they're just even, you know, during the Affordable Care Act debate when abortion almost hung up the entire law, there just weren't the votes. to. to And the risk is no federal funding for health care programs. So.
2: <laughs> no lawmaker is willing to, to take that risk for the right. political yes.
3: Yeah. But it is interesting that they're trying to tighten it. There are mm-hmm. a bunch of anti-abortion groups that are trying to get rid of the rape and incest exceptions again. So it would just be to save the life of the woman. And they've been they
0: reached out to the the head of the RNC and they're trying to kind of modify the platform. So. And, of course, they're trying desperately to write it into permanent law because, as you mentioned, Sandia, yeah. they have to they have to reapprove this yeah. every year, even though it is now routine. It right. does, In theory, any year mm-hmm. you could make it go away. Yeah. All right. So let's talk very quickly about. And Alice, you mentioned some of these. You know what the what the state the most common state restrictions are besides sort of bans. So you have
1: actual yeah. bans and bans <laughs> on procedures, right? So I I guess I guess it could be helpful to sort of think of it as like who, what, when, where, why. <laughs> The who, I guess, is, you know, people under a certain age. Also, the who could be people who are on, you know, Medicaid or or other federal um, insurance programs or um, even on private insurance. But in the ACA market, um, there's been attempts to say that any plan that gets a federal subsidy can't cover abortion. Um, a bunch of states have that restriction. Right. Yeah. And so, some
0: are in Ohio's trying to ban even private insurance coverage.
1: Right. Right, right, right. There's the what, which, which could be the method. Um, the the different surgical methods that are used at different points in pregnancy to terminate pregnancy. There's also attempts to go after medication abortion, um, the abortion pill, where it's available, how people could get it, um, and and um, and the, that's for only very early in pregnancy, um, uh, when there's waiting periods. Um, you know, if a woman has to drive five hours to get to a clinic. Twice because you go, you have your consultation and visit and exam, and then you have to wait and then go back. Um, people challenge those restrictions, saying, you know, it's 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 insulting to say that a woman needs a forty-eight hours to really think about it, as if she hasn't already. There's um, once based on the number of weeks of pregnancy. There's yeah, there's just a lot out there, <laughs> and those ones have mostly all are not enforced.
0: Um, although some of them, I mean, we did discover right. you know, in, in Missouri, you know, that, that uh, oh, we think the admitting privileges, mm-hmm. I think that's in effect in Missouri, even though it was right. struck oh, down I meant, I meant the, um,
2: yeah. the number of weeks of gestation oh, yes. bans yes. are yes. not in effect. Some of the 20-week bans are in effect.
0: Like, There's Texas a lot of them yeah. still. Yeah, because right. they haven't not been true. challenged. I think a lot of them haven't been challenged because abortion rights groups were afraid that they would get to the Supreme Court and lose right. and mm-hmm. didn't want to set that precedent. Well, also, yeah. some
1: of them are moot because there are no clinics that perform them mm-hmm. after anyway, yeah. that time in pregnancy anyway.
0: You have to have a live conflict in order to
1: have
0: bring, a challenge. bring your case in court. Mm-hmm. And
2: I think, just sorry, quickly, just to add on to that, I think one of the most important ones is the um, restrictions on clinics, the regulations mm-hmm. that, you know, clinics say there's so many regulations that it – really
0: impedes what they can provide. We did see a lot of clinics in Texas close, even even though the Supreme Court struck down most of those um, restrictions. Previously, a a number of clinics had closed. So which brings us back to to something you said, Jen, which is that, you know, even though abortion is still legal in all 50 states, that doesn't mean it's accessible.
2: Right. And I think Texas is the most noteworthy example of that. Uh, Abortion restrictions went into effect in, in Texas. The the law that eventually led to the whole Women's Health v. Hellerstadt case, um, we saw the number of clinics. I I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but they halved. And that was when the law went into effect. And when the law was struck down by the Supreme Court, you know, we did not see those same number of clinics come back um, because once a clinic closes, it's harder for it to reopen. And so, you know, some of these abortion providers say that the burden is just too heavy and that it really Impedes, and now we're seeing that in Missouri. You know whether they can open their doors.
0: So we've obviously talked about all the, the ways the Supreme Court might or might not address this, but I think both sides seem to be looking towards the post Roe landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're seeing bluer states, which we haven't talked about, try and strike some of their pre-Roe bans off the books because, of course, what Roe said was that states can't ban abortion. So there were a number of states that simply had laws that couldn't be enforced that if Roe were overturned, they could be enforced. Um, We're also seeing people who are running for president um, talking about efforts to enshrine
1: abortion rights uh, into law. Alice, you wrote about one of these efforts just this week. Yeah, I thought this was one of the more original ones. We're seeing a lot of Democratic presidential candidates say, that they will try to overturn the Hyde Amendment, that they will try to put something into law that enshrines the Roe versus Wade protections so that even if the Supreme Court does strike it down, it'll be passed by Congress. It'll be... In effect. Um, But yesterday, Kamala Harris rolled out a plan uh, that was unlike any that I had seen otherwise. And it's really interesting because it puts the burden on the states that want to restrict abortion rather than on the groups that have to sue. So, right now, states are passing all these restrictions, and advocates have to sue each policy individually and challenge them in court. This, Full
0: employment for reproductive health lawyers on both certainly, sides. Certainly,
1: <laughs> certainly. This would flip the, the dynamic. This would set up a system like the Voting Rights Act, where states that have a history of restricting abortion rights would have to justify every new policy they try to pass and get pre clearance from the Justice Department or they can't do them.
0: It's hard to imagine Congress passing that. I would just point out that Congress in 1993, the same year yes. they tried unsuccessfully to get rid of the Hyde Amendment, tried to pass something called the Freedom of Choice Act. And it didn't fare any better than President Clinton's health reform plan that year. Um, and for the same reason, there were just too many conservative Democrats who are anti-abortion. That's not really the case now because there aren't that many Democrats left who are anti-abortion as there aren't very many Republicans left to support abortion rights. But I mean. Maybe if Roe were actually overturned, might things in Congress change? I don't know. Change? Congress
1: hasn't even uh, restored the actual Voting Rights Act yes, <laughs> um, <a fair> itself <laughs> uh, since the Supreme Court took out a major piece of the enforcement in 2013. They haven't even been able to do that. So the the idea of applying that model to the thorny issue of abortion is, I think, not not happening in Congress. Yeah, and
3: all the bills that they voted on in the past few years on abortion have been very partisan and kind of show votes where even if you talk to the groups that support them, they know it's not going to pass, but they're messaging to their base. So mm-hmm. it's very unlikely that they would be able to pass something and, you know, get it signed and go into effect on
2: And frankly, you know, conservatives argue that if Roe is overturned, the decision on what kind of restrictions to have in the state would go back to the states. And that's what they want. So it's hard to see Republicans really pushing for federal legislation unless it were some kind of restriction and ban and – at this point, I don't see Democrats going for anything like that. Even I can't even see a handful of Democrats going for that. So I think Congress would try to legislate. Democrats would certainly try to make abortion legal in all states. But I don't see
0: federal legislation happening in that way. Yeah. All right, well, that will be the last word. This will obviously continue to be a top burner political issue, and we will continue to talk about it. Uh, now we're going to play the Bill of the Month interview I taped with KHN's Lauren Weber. It's also coincidentally about women's reproductive health, uh, specifically giving birth. Here's the interview. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Lauren Weber, who wrote our latest Bill of the Month. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So, Lauren, this month's patient is a health professional herself. Tell us who she is and how she interacted with the healthcare system.
4: So Carly Kirschneider is a nurse midwife who lives outside of Twin Cities, Minnesota, uh, right outside in Wisconsin. And for the birth of her second child, her son, she wanted to have a little bit of a different birthing experience. Uh, She wanted to actually take advantage of nitrous oxide, which was something that she'd been recommending to a lot of her patients. Laughing gas, which you get at the dentist, right? You get it at the dentist. A lot of people aren't familiar with it, but it is something that has been around for, for decades. It, frankly, was more popular uh, before the 1950s and 1970s, when the epidural came into vogue. Uh, once more that, popular for giving birth. Yes. Uh, most people used it as a pain reliever for labor pains then. It's also still very popular in Great Britain and Canada because it's very cost effective. She was very interested in this and she decided she wanted to do it for her son, Leah Vithon. And uh, she loved it. She said it really took the edge off. She felt like she could feel the birth of her baby. She felt like she was more in the moment. She wouldn't trade it for the world. And then the bill came. And then the bill came. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, billing, the
0: bill that we're really talking about is the bill for the nitrous oxide, right? So how much did she get charged for the nitrous oxide? So
4: at the end of the day, she got charged uh, $4,836 for the nitrous oxide, was what the insurance and herself were billed. That is a crazy amount of money, considering that to buy yourself a new nitrous oxide tank is $5,000. So as she said to me, essentially, since she is a nurse midwife... She could have had that baby at home in her bathtub and bought her own tank and rented it out to people and probably would have come out ahead. Um, and not that she would have done that, but it's it's very frustrating to see, especially as a healthcare professional, that high of a bill when she knows that even at her own hospital where she works, they only charge a hundred dollars to use the nitrous oxide.
0: What was the hospital's explanation for why it was able to charge so much? You know,
4: the hospital's explanation, they coded it as an anesthesia service. And uh, in talking to experts, that does not necessarily seem to be quite you know, normal. And Uh, it was
0: not delivered by an anesthesia professional.
4: And that would have been if it had been delivered by an anesthesia professional or if there had been a nurse anesthetist, that would have been, you know, it's not uncommon, but still legitimate. You know, this is, it's a little bit in a gray area. And in part, that's because nitrous oxide has only recently become more popular in the United States. So there is no set real coding for it. A lot of hospitals kind of have a case-by-case status of this. Some charge a facilities fee of just a flat 100, kind of like uh, Carly's Hospital, and others charge nothing at all because it's 50 cents basically to run a tank of gas for an hour.
0: (laughs) So how did she figure out that that she had such a huge bill for just the nitrous oxide part of her birthing process? Well,
4: you know, since she had had a pretty low-key birth, so to speak, I mean, she had a water birth with nitrous oxide, which she, in her her mind, thought was not going to be very expensive. She was very surprised to see an itemized bill that kind of laid out such a large number and then asked for a a more detailed itemized bill. And that's when she realized she really honestly thought that they had charged her for an epidural and accident. And after calling both her hospital and her insurance multiple times, she was assured, no, it was not a mistake. This is how they charge it. Um, This is what we're going to do. So eventually the bill got reduced, right? The bill did eventually get reduced. Her insurance company went back to the hospital and said, look, we're not paying this. We'll pay for basically what they said is an hour of the nitrous oxide, which ended up being $496, which— Carly ended up paying as part of her overall bill,
0: but that's way down from
4: four thousand. It is way down from almost five grand, but it is still, frankly, higher than a lot of the other hospitals charge for nitrous in this country. But at the end of the day, since there's no standardization, it's kind of the wild, wild west when it comes to charging for nitrous oxide.
0: So, what's the take home here? I mean, what can what can patients who, obviously, most patients aren't as knowledgeable as she is. She basically helps women give
4: birth for a living. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, I think the take home is she herself got tripped up because she just assumed it would be hundred dollars because she knew how much it cost. I think if you were looking to give birth in the near future and you are interested in using nitrous oxide, I would absolutely call the hospital that you're looking at and see what their fee is for it so that you can shop around and don't get caught with one of these massive bills at the end of the day.
0: Lauren Weber, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, we are back. And that's a wrap for our 100th show. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. At Alice Holstein. At Sundia Rights, At Jen Hab. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.